So my name is Matthew. If we haven't met yet, it's really good to meet you. I'm glad that you're here. Maybe you've come with a family member or a friend and you're our guest. And so I'm so glad that you're our guest today. And, um, you know, here you are, you're, you're listening to a choir <laughs> and we're all very excited. And, and you might just be kind of new to Christianity and you're going, okay, I, I'm just trying to kind of put the pieces together. I'm new to Jesus, new to the story. And so um, I hope you just feel welcome today, and we're going to dive into some things that I hope you find really interesting, and I hope we all find um, the story, um, the data, um, all of the unique uh, details about, the, about the, the story of the resurrection, um, I hope you find it fascinating. Let me begin with this. In 2009, Portland Monthly invited renowned atheist Christopher Hitchens to a conversation with a, a liberal Christian. Uh, her name is Marilyn Sewell. Marilyn Sewell does not believe in the resurrection, although she calls herself a Christian. And she's a retired minister from the First Unitarian Church of Portland. So Marilyn Sewell sat down uh, with Christopher Hitchens. And some of you know who Christopher Hitchens is and uh, the brilliant, sharp mind he has. And uh, I want to tell you about the conversation that unfolded. Marilyn Sewell says this to him. She says, quote, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And I love Christopher Hitchens' response. This is one of my favorite responses that he's ever made. He says this to her. He says, quote, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. <laughs> That's a very interesting response. And so Hitchens says, listen, if you're a Christian, you confess that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And the, and the wonderful thing is that the Apostle Paul agrees. The Apostle Paul and Christopher Hitchens have never been so like-minded as this moment. He writes in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Your faith is useless unless Jesus historically rose from the dead. Everything hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is not alive, everything we're doing here this morning is a massive waste of time. You should just hop into your spandex and hop on your bike and go for a long bike ride. Um, is this spandex? I don't know. It's tight little outfits. All of you bikers wear. And, uh, or you should go for brunch. You know, go for brunch. Do something different. Why are you here celebrating the risen Christ? This is something that Hitchens and the Apostle Paul can agree on. That everything, that the resurrection matters. It matters. So welcome as we dive into the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. We, we live in a scientific age. We're an intellectual people. We believe what we can see proved in a laboratory, under a microscope, or through a telescope. So the idea that Jesus actually died and then actually rose from the dead, we find it impossible. And it makes sense, right? We find that impossible. But we have to ask ourselves a first question. Is it impossible because people don't rise from the dead? Or is it impossible because you have never seen someone rise from the dead? Which is a very different question. As my friend, Pastor Tim, said it, quote, if there is only a material world, 
and you claim to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is only a material world, you would need to stand outside the material world to know that, right? Do any of us in the room have the ability to stand outside the material world and claim that the resurrection could never, ever happen? I don't think so. I don't think we have that vantage point. So all of us today are in the same boat. We are all collecting pieces of data, um, doing some investigation, looking into the facts, and we're having to kind of put it all together. So today we come with humility to look again at the reasons to trust the historical account of the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to say that there is enough evidence, I believe, to believe. You and I don't have to check our brain at the door when we become Christians. So I want to speak to a specific group of you here today. Um, some of you may be brand new on your journey of exploration when it comes to Jesus. And I'm so glad you're here. And some of you are on a journey of deconstruction. For you, faith has been very difficult. Um, and maybe you've grown up in the faith and it's, you're kind of maybe moving the other way. And some of you are excited on your journey with Jesus. Some of you are feeling cynical on your journey with Jesus. But wherever you're at, I dedicate this to you. Um, I really had you in mind when I was putting this together. And I hope that you'll be encouraged. Uh, you'll be encouraged to trust that Jesus is alive. And so, Jesus, we give this time to you, and we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, that we would truly see you and know you. And, and Jesus, if you're alive, that you would change our lives, that you would flood our lives with hope. We thank you and trust you. Amen. Okay, so why do I believe? I had to do some soul searching myself and say, okay, Matthew, be honest. Why do you believe in Christianity? Why do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And I want to offer a few things. It's kind of a bit of a, uh, a combination of a few things. So first of all, I believe in Jesus and that Christianity is true because I've witnessed the power of Jesus in my own life. I've witnessed the power of him changing, working in me, and just finding that his way makes sense, most sense of reality. And I've found that when I tr work and receive his love and align my life with his teachings, um, that there is just a power there, and I've, I've found life. Secondly, I believe because I've seen the transforming power of Jesus in the lives of my friends. Um, I've watched them. It's not just been a, just an intellectual thing or just a heart thing, but I've watched their lives be changed from the inside out. It's been powerful. But I also believe a third reason is because I've seen the influence Jesus has had on the world. Jesus' life and his teachings have truly changed the world. His teachings on loving your neighbor, praying and loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, showing compassion, the teaching on equality that all humans are made equal under the eyes of God. M many of Jesus' teachings, they are good gifts to our world. And you don't have to be a Christian to, to think that. Like you can enjoy the gifts of Jesus, um, all these teachings on compassion and equality and, and love of enemy and all of that right? I think it's just good. It's just really good. It's good for Langley. It's good for Canada. It's good for the world. And so I believe because I, I think the way of Jesus is truly good for the culture around me. 
But finally, I believe because I believe Jesus actually lived, died, and rose again historically, and that there are good reasons to believe that Jesus was alive that Easter morning. So to be clear, I think you and I can have a variety of reasons to come to believe that Christianity is true. Today, I just want to unpack that fourth one, right? That last one. Does that make sense? Are we alive? Are we here? Yes, this is my third cup of coffee today. Now, to start, I want to make sure that we all know that no credible historian today doubts that a real man named Jesus lived and walked the earth 2,000 years ago in an area that today we call Israel, and that he was crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, okay? So these these things are not really up for debate amongst um, credible scholars, historians. What people doubt is whether or not he rose from the dead, of course, right? This is the thing that that, that we we struggle with, which is what we're going to look at today. So as we dive in, I just want to cite a few people that were really helpful here. A lot of what I'm saying comes from the work of William Lane Craig, some of it from Gary Habermas, some from Lee Strobel, and the rest from N.T. Wright. And so if you're at all interested in further reading, those are some names, uh, and they're a good road to follow. And so they would have a lot more to say. But what I've done today is collected six things. I'm going to say very quickly because I don't have a lot of time. Uh, Six things, six signposts that point to the resurrection. Now, notice I'm not using the language of evidence, because I think as soon as you say evidence, all of a sudden we go, oh, you know, it just is, it's a little bit kind of in your face. I would like to suggest that these are signposts. Um, I do believe that they are evidence, but what I'd encourage you to do is more like a signpost, like let these things draw your gaze into deeper study or into deeper reflection, a deeper homework, right? Like let it just kind of be a sign that's pointing you to like, oh, okay, this is new, this is interesting, I can work with this, okay? So six signposts. And none of these signposts are kind of airtight arguments, but because I'm not here to show you a video. Like, if, I, I hope you're not massively disappointed. I'm not about to show you CCTV, you know, CCTV footage of the resurrection, right? It's like, I've got the video, guys, it's amazing. I'll prove it. Uh, because to be honest, we'd be like, yeah, it's CG, you know, or like, I don't know. We, we, we could even doubt the video footage. So um, all these six signposts combined, I believe in my life, have made me pause to reconsider the true possibility that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, you with me? As my friend from John from Northern Ireland says, Matthew, are you with me? <laughs> yes, I am, John. I'm so with you. Here we go. Signpost number one. Women are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. It's a very interesting uh, bit of data. Um, Early followers of Jesus, if they were trying to invent a story, because see, this is one of the pushbacks. It's like, hey, early Christians, you guys invented this. You know, you invented the story of the resurrection. They could. They could do that. You could invent a story. They could invent a story, but they would not invent this story. Here's why. Because the testimony of a woman was discounted in first century uh, in Israel, in the courts. The testimony of women was regarded as so worthless that it could not be admitted into a Jewish court of law. The Jewish and Roman historian Josephus, writing shortly after the life of Jesus, wrote, quote, let not the testimony of women be admitted. So in, in the courts in Israel, you would be looking for the testimony of men. Those were the only credible witnesses. But the New Testament confirms that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Women are the first to come early in the morning to an empty tomb that Easter Sunday 
And an angel says to them, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He's not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. You don't add this detail if you want your story to be credible. And as hard and as odd as that sounds to us today in the 21st century in Canada, it's just true about 2,000 years ago in Israel. Skip the women part and just talk about the part where Peter comes and sees the empty tomb. If you want your story to be credible, right? But no, women are said to be the first ones there. And so the followers of Jesus wrote it down that way. They were just telling the truth. And this is important because this is a big deal. Because this story, the more you read it, it has the, quote, ring of truth to it. It's got that feeling, that sense that this is not over the top, this is not outlandish, that this is simply a record of what happened. There's too many embarrassing bits to it. There's too many weird bits to it, right? It's got this ring of truth. So again, if early followers of Jesus were trying to invent a story, they could do that. They could do that, totally. They could invent a story, but they would not invent this story. Signpost number two. The followers who abandoned Jesus at the cross were later willing to die for Jesus. This is something interesting to ponder. Did you know that most of Jesus' community and friends abandoned him when he was crucified? When he was on the cross, his earliest disciples pieced it. They weren't there, right? Now, John seems to have been there with Jesus' mother Mary, but the rest of them were gone. And this is simply an incredibly embarrassing fact to put in the story about yourself. Again, so if we were being critical and we're like, ah, they totally made up the story. Would you put this into your own story if you were making up a religion, right? Peter betrays Jesus and then he's nowhere to be found at the cross. You know, he, he ditched Jesus. And so if he's making up this religion and you're writing the story down, why include such embarrassment about yourself into the story? But anyway, that's not the main point. The amazing thing is, within days, Jesus' followers were willing to die for him. To die for him. So what happened? What happened in such a short period of time from leaving him, abandoning him at the cross, and then being willing to die for him? Let me tell you something interesting. Historically, we know of 28 Jewish men who claimed to be the Messiah. 28 historical figures who claimed to be the Messiah. All right? 27 of them died and did not claim to be raised to life. Only one, right? Only one. Now, if you're the followers of those other 27, right? And you're like, ah, ah, he, he, he died. Okay, well, I guess that's done, right? And you go back to being a farmer or whatever, which in reality is what happened to the disciples of Jesus. They're like, oh, he died. Okay, movement over, movement done, right? But one was said, to rise from the dead. And this, so this is not, this is an anomaly. This is not something you just randomly make up, right? What made the shift so dramatic, what, like what happened between abandoning him at the cross and weeks later being willing to die for him? Because you see, not many would die for a lie. They wouldn't die for a lie. Would you die for a lie? If you know you were making this up, would you die for a lie? Jesus' followers could have invented the story, it's true, but if, but if they knew that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that his body was actually buried in some field nearby, that Jesus was just like the other 27 Jewish leaders who claimed to be the Messiah and died, 
would they have actually died for Jesus? Not many would die for a lie. Referring to the disciples, Neil Shevney writes, quote, when they began to face persecution and even death, why would they continue to affirm what they knew to be a lie? The best explanation is that they truly believed they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. You see, 10 of Jesus' 12 disciples were killed or martyred for their faith. That's how the first group, that, that's what happened to the first group of 12, right? One, that's Judas, took his life before he saw the risen Jesus. And one, that's John, may have died in old age uh, in prison on the island of Patmos. But 11 of his closest followers were willing to die and to be brutally treated for a lie? (laughs) No, they must have seen something. So here's the deal. Maybe, let's say, for argument's sake, it's not the resurrection, but then what did they see? What did they experience? Because they they saw and they experienced something life-changing after Jesus died on the cross because nothing could explain that radical shift in his early followers. To illustrate this, some of you will remember the Watergate scandal that rocked the United States in the 1970s. Chuck Colson, a name many of you know, was President Richard Nixon's quote-unquote hatchet man. Colson spent time in prison for the lies and the cover-up schemes that he was involved in. He did some pretty illegal stuff for Richard Nixon. But while in prison, some of you may not know this, he became a Christian. And he had a powerful life where he ministered to lots of prisoners after that. But listen to his quote on why he believes the resurrection is true. I love this quote. He says, quote, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I love that. All right, signpost number three. The body of Jesus has never been discovered. Now follow me here. Jewish authorities, the Roman Empire, and Jesus' followers all knew where he was buried. That's really important. It was public, right? It's a public information. And archaeologists today confirm that in Jewish burial tradition, you don't lose a body. You just don't lose a body. Now, we could say that hopefully about today as well. People keep track of their loved ones. And they would come back, I think it's a year later in Jewish tradition, to collect the bones, and then they would put the bones in a box. Okay. Now, had Peter and John taken Jesus' body alone, so let's be cynical, and we're like, hey, Peter and James took the, Peter and John took the body, no accountability, right? I could understand that we'd be skeptical that maybe they buried him in some weird grave, unknown grave somewhere. But that's not this story. That's not this story. The tomb was, it's a public thing. It belonged to a man uh, named Joseph of Arimathea. And the Roman Empire put guards there. So it's public, right? Again, Jesus' body is not hidden in a field. It's, it's a public place, Roman guards stood in front of the tomb, and according to the New Testament, the Jewish leadership acknowledged that the tomb was empty, right? And they had a problem on their hands, but they never produced a body. Now, which is interesting, isn't it? 
Because here's the point. If you found Jesus' grave and his bones, it would end Christianity as we know it, right? Seriously, it would end it. Any, all any Roman or Jewish leader had to do was be like, he's not dead. Ta-da. Like your whole movement, like just stop it, right? Because look, the dead body right here, right? And it would have ended it, right? Jesus would have been one of the, you know, 28, you know, Jewish leaders, messiahs that died or whatever, who claimed to be the messiah. It's that simple. And to this day, no one has found the body. Neil Shevney again, he says, how did Christianity grow so rapidly in the very place where Jesus was buried if it could have been falsified so easily? Of course, in 2007, Titanic director James Cameron thought that he had found the bones of Jesus. And maybe you've been thinking this while I've been making this point. You're like, but James Cameron, the Titanic guy, my heart will go on. He found them, right? Um, and, you know, wow, Hollywood directors have some interesting time on their hands to do some pretty cool stuff. Um, so I don't have to go into all the reasons why uh, that was not true. So they found a, a box with bones in it, and it had the name Jesus. It's a common name at the time. So, but it was like, hey, here are Jesus' bones. So um, there's lots of reasons to be very skeptical about this archaeological find because this box was in a family tomb, and so there were relatives of the family in this family tomb. Um, and so I've got a great article. If some of you want to do some more digging on this, by Craig Evans, a biblical scholar here in Canada, does, wrote a great piece on why James Cameron did not find the bones of Jesus. Um, so I, that, that would take way too long, and we'd be here for another two hours. So I can send that to you if you're interested. Just send me an email. But uh, Daryl Bach, writing in Time Magazine in 2007, asks a very uh, uh, obvious question. He says, why would Jesus' family or followers bury his bones in a family plot and then turn around and preach that he had been physically raised from the dead? Okay. So it's like, okay, so we're going to get a little box, and we're going to actually put Jesus' name on it. And then we're going to like hop on over to the family tomb where if, if someone was going to try to find if Jesus was dead, probably site number one that you'd go to and be like, is he in there? Does he have a box in there? Does his box have a name on it? <laughs> it's like, okay, so if we were trying to hide this or cover this up, this probably wouldn't be the mode at which we would do this. This is like me robbing a jewelry store and then taking off my gloves and putting my fingerprints all over the glass and then spray painting my name on a wall and then leaving a little note to the police entitled, signed, love Matthew Price, smiley face, right? So if you're trying to keep Jesus' death a secret, don't put a name on the box. That's kind of like rule number one. And then don't play said box in family tomb, right? So that can be seen by others. Anyway, body of Jesus has not been discovered. Okay, signpost number four. The historical record can be trusted, right? The historical record described in the Bible can be trusted. So I want to talk about the Apostle Paul for a second. Why Paul? Well, because here's the deal, because we're going to put our critical hats on, and we're going to say, okay, a lot of this stuff in the Bible, how can I trust it? So most critics, to my knowledge, agree that a man named Paul was a historical figure and that he did write the book of 1 Corinthians and Galatians. And he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians around the year 53 AD. So hold that number in your mind. Uh, even the atheist critic of Christianity, Bart Ehrman, some of you know that name, very famous critic, he concedes that yes, Paul was a historical man and yes, he did write 1 Corinthians and Galatians. They're authentic letters. And so we go to 1 Corinthians and look at what we find. Paul says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ 
died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And here's why I find this text so interesting and amazing. Because you're like, what's the point? Here's the point. If Paul is writing around the year 53 and Jesus rose from the dead around 33, it means we have a 20-year gap between the resurrection and a, rec a recording, a document that testifies to the resurrection. Okay, now think about this. Source, so how many of you believe that there was this figure named Alexander the Great that lived? Any show of hands, you believe that? This is not trick. Not very many of you put up your hands. So just most of you can just go, yeah, yeah, we believe that. Yeah, that's good. So um, would you be interested to know that sources for Alexander the Great come to us 300 years after his death? And no one is like not believing that Alexander the Great uh, was real, right? But with Jesus, we have a source, 1 Corinthians, written 20 years after his resurrection. 300-year gap with Alexander the Great, 20-year gap with Jesus, which is pretty amazing. But it doesn't end there. Not only that, Paul says that he had been preaching the resurrection for 14 years. And so if we're willing to like look into the data a little bit, could, could it be that we have some, some evidence that the church was teaching the resurrection within five to six years after the event? Now, here's the deal. We can still be critical, and we can be like, here's the deal. In those five years, I bet you the church just invented the story, right? Um, but here's, here's the thing. This is important because there is a critique of Christianity that the resurrection was invented 100, 200, 300 years later. Like, it was just this kind of story that they invented way later, right? But here we have 1 Corinthians showing us that that's not true. Now, you can still say, well, they invented it in the first five years. Okay, but that's a different argument than they invented it in the first 100, 200, 300 years. Does that make sense? Okay. Signpost number five. The grave clothes remained in the tomb. So, uh, why is this important? Well, there's been a very popular theory that Jesus' body was stolen, that thieves stole the body, right? Um, but there's two problems with this idea. Uh, first, why would a thief go through the trouble of unwrapping the body? Have you ever thought about this? You know, spent some time thinking about, you know, hey, if I was stealing a body, which really is not a great game to play just in general. But if I was stealing a body, right, and to all the RCMP officers and Vancouver police officers, this has not occurred in my life, right? So, um, but I'm assuming if I were to kind of role play that, uh, I, I would want to steal it quickly, okay? So you don't take the time, I don't think, to awkwardly unwrap the corpse when you're stealing it. And so you're just like, hey, Bruno, you know, let's steal this body and let's meticulously unwrap the body, right? Um, not sure why Bruno. Uh, it's, we're in New Jersey. We're stealing bodies in New Jersey. Uh, so it's take time. Okay, but secondly, the thieves left the most expensive item in the tomb, the linen that Jesus is wrapped in. That's actually the expensive thing, right? So what are you doing leaving the expensive thing in the tomb? So because the, the linen was filled with all kinds of uh, spices and perfume, and a thief would want the very thing that was left behind. So if it's a thief, why leave the expensive stuff behind? And if you're in a hurry, why leave anything behind? Just get out of there. Now, on top of all of this, that the, the, the cloth that goes around the head is said to have been left in the tomb folded up. Folded up nicely. Now, no enemy or thief or definitely no one who's in a hurry would fold the expensive cloth and nicely place it in the tomb. What thief do you know of who folds things up nicely? I just got to make sure that things are okay, like when I leave the house, right? Just a, it's a very kind, organized, uh, uh, you know, 
a conscientious thief. Okay, finally this, signpost number six, and I've kind of saved an important one for the end because this one really means a lot to me. Monotheistic Jews are worshiping Jesus. For the record, Jews don't worship people, right? That's kind of like rule number one if you're part of, part of the people of Israel, right? Many of you who have read, uh, some of you might be new to the Bible, but if you've read the Old Testament, you know there are many prohibitions in the Old Testament when it comes to God's uh, rules for God's people that you worship God alone. And that's what the word monotheistic means. Mono, one, theos, God, right? One God. So you're monotheistic. You believe in worshiping only God. Does this mean we're allowed to worship humans? No. No. Okay, we're not worshiping humans. Okay. So yet, within days of the resurrection, hundreds of monotheistic Jews are worshiping Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth? What? That doesn't just happen. They saw something. Okay, remember, we can be critical, we can be cynical, we can go, okay, well, it wasn't the resurrection. Well, it's fine, but then what, did, what do you say they saw? What did they experience? They, they experienced something, something massive must have happened to cause that many Jewish people to start worshiping Jesus as God. Nothing short of some kind of miraculous encounter with something or someone could cause that kind of monotheism to change on a dime, right? What was it? Can you think about it for a second? How hard is it to change your mind about something? And you'd need to be honest because you're sitting next to your family or your friends, right? It's like, he doesn't change his mind about anything, right? I bet it's really hard to change your mind, right? I mean, I mean it's hard to change my mind. I mean, we, we just lived through the pandemic, right? Like, how hard, do we have different opinions on politics and ethics and all kinds of things? Yes. And how hard was it? Do we have different opinions on sports teams? Yes. How hard is it to change your mind? It's hard. Now imagine being a Jew, and your whole life, the whole Jewish project was about worshiping one God and one God alone, and now within days, you're worshiping as God, the carpenter's son from Nazareth. What happened? What happened? So here's what we're doing. All we're doing is we're just coming. We're trying to be humble. We're trying to put the data together. We're following the signposts. But you put all six of those signposts together, included with other signposts that I didn't include today, right, that didn't make the cut for today. These were my six favorites. And you start to add it up. So, so my encouragement to you, if you're coming and you're on this journey, just, just take your time and put the data together and read and check it out. And, and what we do is we start to remove some obstacles to belief, and as soon as we start to remove some of them, what do you have left over? Maybe you have the truth left over. Listen to Sherlock Holmes. How often have I said to you that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth? I know that the resurrection feels improbable, right? But, but just collect the data. Do your own, go on your own journey. I'm here to help. I know there's people in your life that are here to help. Um, but we slowly eliminate the impossible and objections, and what if we're left with the truth, no matter how improbable it sounds? The New Testament scholar uh, Jeremiah Johnston points out that every sermon in the book of Acts includes the resurrection. There are over 300 passages of the resurrection in the New Testament, and there's only 260 chapters in the New Testament, right? Which shows the, the risen Jesus is not some kind of fringe teaching. It's the heart of our faith. 
And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, the Jesus movement would have been dead in the water, something the Apostle Paul and Christopher Hitchens can agree on. And why is that? Because the promise of Jesus is this. Because I live, you also will live. That's it. That's Christianity in a nutshell, right there, right? Keep it simple. That's it. We will not only receive eternal life, but a new and transformed life that, be, that can begin today. Today. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. And I hope that this fills you with hope. If Jesus is alive, then the empty tomb is a nail in death's own coffin. If Jesus is alive, it means someone has authority over death. Death seemed unconquerable until it was conquered. Death seemed irreversible until it was reversed. Death seemed all-powerful until it was defeated. Death seemed to have the final word until it didn't. This is the hope that we carry as Christians. Death has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. Death is working backwards, and God is making all things new, and that includes you. That includes you. And he Wright writes, resurrection isn't just a long-distance, far-off hope. It's a person, and it, he, that's Jesus, has come forward from God's ultimate future to burst into the present with new life and new hope that was and is the message the world needs. And Earth Langley, in my final seconds here, I'm here to say that you can have the hope of life, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of freedom, the hope of real change, the hope of eternity, the hope of knowing deeply the love of God for you. There is hope for you. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Because I live, you also will live. And if you've come fearful, sinful, broken, weary, hopeless, so close to death, may you be filled with hope today because Jesus is alive and you can come alive. And he stands here today with his arms outstretched and he simply says, come, come. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Look at that question right there. Do you believe this? What if this is true? Like actually true? What if it's true that Jesus is alive and that he loves you and that he has the gift of life, a transformative life waiting for you a life of hope, peace, joy, freedom, love, mercy, grace. His arms are outstretched and he says, come, come. Will you receive it? Will you receive him? Jesus, we come to you and we say, would you come and fill us with your life? Because you live, we too can live. We love you and we give our hearts and our minds to you. Keep changing us. Keep transforming us. We trust you. Amen.